Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 306, A Devil and No Man. And just before we start, here's an announcement about a brand new podcast that's reached the Agora Network. A striking development in the North African nation of Tunisia. Tonight, after violent protests that have lasted for weeks, the Tunisian government has fallen. You don't know if it's tear gas, it could be bullets. I didn't expect to see one of my friends shot in the chest in front of me. I'm Aaron Brown. And I'm Cyrus Rodell. And this is Revolution One from the Agora Podcast Network, where we bring the story of the Tunisian Revolution to life through the voices of those who lived it. It was the mother of one of the martyrs who pushed me to take the photos. She was saying, you have to show the world what's really happening in Tunisia. We wanted to know what it takes to bring down a dictator. So we went to where the Arab Spring began, to Tunisia, where 10 years ago, a desperate young fruit seller set himself on fire and set a new course for his country and the world. We'll tell you the incredible story of how a military officer and a hairdresser managed to create an ironclad police state that they've ruled from yachts and mansions for 23 years. And over the course of eight episodes, we'll hear from the political prisoners, spies, and students who, armed with nothing more than rocks and Facebook, brought it all down. Ten years on, we're still feeling the effects of the Arab Spring today, from the global migration crisis to the rise in nationalism in Europe and the U.S., and with popular uprisings from Hong Kong to Black Lives Matter still gripping the headlines, we thought it would be the perfect time to look back 
to Revolution One. Join us on January 14th, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, when I were a lad, three heroes stick in my mind. No, four, given that no one expects the Spanish Inquisition. In no particular order of priority, Richard the Lionheart, Horatio Nelson, Francis Drake, and maybe the most amazing of all of them, Ernest Shackleton. I am sorry for the lack of diversity or indeed cleverness about this list, but I was 12 and as yet unreconstructed. Of course, as you get older, your attitudes change a bit and you begin to realise that war, death, destruction is without doubt something the world could well do with less of. Despite that, the fascination still remains, though slightly guiltily now. So I might mutter the universal get-out clause about finding military history problematic. And of course, for these particular heroes, the attitudes today are very different to what they were when I were a lad. Now, the most common comment about Richard was that he was only in England for ten months and he spoke English with a brummy accent. No, sorry, a French accent. Boo! Horatio Nelson's personal relationships often play centre stage and he's been accused of supporting the slave trade, though those accusations have thankfully been kicked firmly into touch. But anyway, boo. And then Francis Drake. Well, he doesn't seem quite so omnipresent anymore and he's now all mixed up with shame about empire and colonialism and in a race to the historical bottom... Works have come out marking him down from national hero with a passion for lawn-based sports at inappropriate moments to just plain inappropriate and nothing more than a vicious pirate. Boo. And then there's Ernest, and he's fine, I think, though regrettably Irish. So, frankly, before I came to research this Elizabethan exploration stuff, I was looking not to either bore you or indeed to annoy you and I would dispatch our Fran with a short description of the main points. And to be honest, in many of the general books, Martin Frobisher and Humphrey Gilbert get more attention than does Drake. Many people seem a bit embarrassed. The jaw of the twelve-year-old in me now rests gently on my toe-caps in horror. Too much brother. The point is that once you get into Francis Drake, you quickly realise that this is a story that just must be told and be retold and retold. It must be told because of the 12-year-old me sitting nerd-like in the school library, ignoring the delights of footy on asphalt to read all the daring do and audacity of Drake's raids with the Chimeroons and the Huguenot on the Spanish in Panama, halfway across the world. It must be told because of the sheer drama and human achievement of a 36,000-mile journey around the world unknown to the travellers. It must be told because it showed how sheer chutzpah and the opportunities of the sea raised the farmer's son to a knight of the realm at a time when being a knight of the realm really meant something, and farmers were meant to stay in the station in society they were born to if they wouldn't mind awfully. It must be told because Drake's story reflects so much about the Elizabethan state, navy, globalisation and, indeed, early modern Europe generally. And simply it must be told because Drake shook the world. In 1588, Spanish mariners complained, Sir Francis Drake was a devil and no man. When news of his death was received in Spain, Seville lit up with public celebration as merchants gloried in the death of their scourge and of a heretic. 
Philip II, ill, old and dying, smiled in his palace and declared that he would now get better. And yet despite this, some of his opponents who knew him recognised his quality too. One of the most famous men of his profession that have existed in the world, very courteous and honourable with those who surrendered, of great humanity and gentleness, virtues which must be praised even in an enemy. This was written by Alonso de Sotomayor, one of his opponents later in his life. OK, so the summary of all that rattling, <coughs> sorry for that, is that I will be covering Drake and his explorations, and then of his fellow explorers. I meant to try and knock it all on the head in a single episode, and it may surprise you to learn just how comprehensively I have failed in that objective. Sadly, there are three episodes. I hope I do not bore you, but they will be broken up by two guest episodes you'll be relieved to hear from Ben Jacobs and the return of Joel Kindrick. Now, obviously, this won't just be about Francis, but also about the wider historiography. As far as Drake himself is concerned, the debate falls between two extremes. At one end of the continuum, the Victorian vision of a patriotic Protestant hero who transformed the English navy to the other end, and the view of one biographer, Michael Kelsey, of Drake as merely a pirate, incapable of acting from any better motives at all, and therefore unworthy. And while I'm on the topic of historiography, you might ask, what all the fuss is about with these Elizabethans? After all, the main feature of the Elizabethan age is fruitless endeavour. Not once, did the English capture the Spanish treasure fleet? And let me tell you, they tried hard enough, hanging about the Caribbean and the Azores like 15-year-olds around the bike sheds. There were no colonies founded at all, let alone to compete with the Spanish and the Portuguese. The naval superpower remained Spain. The new naval kid on the block was the Netherlands as much as England. Many of the new routes established were effectively abandoned for 70 years, such as the growing African trade. Exploration seemed to have yielded nothing. So maybe Martin Frobisher's expedition to discover gold in Canada is a suitable analogy for the whole thing. Full of courage, endeavour and danger, and yielding nothing but fool's gold. That, ultimately, is the question we should try to answer while enjoying all the excitement along the way. Contemporary Elizabethans most certainly enjoyed all the excitement. They absolutely lapped up all the exotic stories that flooded back as Elizabethan adventuring grew. We talked about some of them in the West Africa episode. Weird and wonderful creatures with one foot, sea unicorns, mountains of ice, sirens, ghostly fires. Explorers suffered from new diseases and suffered extremes of heat and extremes of cold sailing into unknown waters. One of the odd things was that the more was discovered, the more the stories grew, a bit like the ubiquitous fishermen, but still the old stories stubbornly survived as well. Stories circulated and were published both to promote the reckless bravery of the adventurers, but also to promote new investments in their business ventures and new voyages. Around all these ventures and stories, also developed a theory of what England's role should be in the world. 
Let me introduce you then to John Dee. John Dee was already a well-known astrologer and a mathematician by the time the 1570s rolled around and had established a vast and eclectic library at Mortlake near London. He was involved in a discussion about whether or not to establish the Gregorian calendar into England a couple of hundred years before it actually was introduced into England. At Mortlake, he developed a passion for the promotion of England's role and mission in the process of exploration, and he became a centre of knowledge for the arts of navigation. Many explorers, such as Humphrey Gilbert, beat a path to Dee's door to learn about navigation before casting off on one of the most daring voyages, for which you can't help but think they really ought to have had a better and more, you know, nautically-based training, the ocean at Mortlake being pretty limited and all that. In 1577, Dee published the General and Rare Memorials Portraying the Perfect Art of Navigation, dedicated to Christopher Hatton, the Queen's Vice-Chamberlain. Dee argued that England needed to join the colonial endeavour in which Portugal and Spain were so far advanced, and that she had a perfect right to do so and needed to get on with it. He argued that piracy was all over the place around the British Isles, with dastardly French fishermen taking English fish, which damaged trade and the dignity of the crown. He advanced a plan for Elizabeth to establish a fleet of 80 small frigates, designed for piracy-killing duties, so that trade could flourish, and for better training in the arts of navigation for mariners. He was also, though, concerned with the entitling of Queen Elizabeth to very large foreign dominions, based on historical right in his view. So, according to Dee, who mined the ancient works such as the Welsh Brute, which spoke of Arthur, and of course the ubiquitous Geoffrey of Monmouth, North America had once belonged to the ancient British kings, and therefore Elizabeth should take it as her role not to establish a British empire, but to re-establish the British Empire. And so here we are, the first use of the phrase British Empire for your delectation, invented by Master John Dee. His writings were carefully crafted propaganda, advancing the cause and rights of Elizabeth as an imperial ruler, and at the same time presenting images of the goddesses of opportunity, trade, profit, agriculture, mining... Dee was not alone in this image of an imperial majesty creating a global empire. George Gower's portrait of 1579 features a globe behind Elizabeth's right shoulder. Another version in 1583 has that globe painted in, with the British Isles glowing in the sun. Meanwhile, Elizabeth's privy councillors were principal players, both in encouraging new expeditions and providing an avenue to the Queen to persuade her to support new ventures. Christopher Carlyle, for example, was a trader and the stepson of Walsingham and involved in the eastward trade towards Muscovy. There, he found that local politics, war between Denmark and Muscovy in this case, disrupted his trade. And so he argued for greater westward expansion to trade with the natives of North America. There was another reason for Carlyle's advocacy of westward expansion – freedom of religion. He wrote that traders and their families would face no confessions of idolatrous religion enforced on them, 
but contrarily shall be at their free liberty of conscience. Thus, from a very early date, North America was associated with freedom of religion. In time, this was not just a Protestant or Puritan urge. Catholics also saw the opportunity to escape the increasingly repressive recusancy laws. Two Catholic squires, George Peckham and Thomas Gerrard, set out to establish a colony in what would one day become Rhode Island. Some of this seems really silly to the modern eye. D proposed the area, advising it as most suitable for settlement. D knew pretty much nothing about the area, certainly never been there. And then on the basis of D's superspurious British Empire claims, Gerard was allocated the rights to two million acres. And he and Peckham planned the colony in fine detail, defining what the settlers should be required to provide depending on the size of their land grant. Peckham then went on to advertise the venture, really bigging up the benefits, of course. The new world was presented as a fertile paradise. Huge stocks of fish with more enthusiasm than Peter Shilton for the Yangtze. Grapes, as big as a man's thumb. Potato roots, maize, gold, silver and precious stones easily bartered from the natives. And what of the natives? Well, they of course would benefit from the gospel, plus an education in all sorts of science and arts. There are a couple of common themes here emerging. Firstly... There was a sense of panic that everyone else seemed to be charging ahead. England mustn't get left behind. And that the English had a claim to the colonies which was just. Our foreign neighbours are enriched by this abounding land. While pent at home like sluggards, we remain. Then England thrust among them for a share, since title just and right is surely thine. In the end, Peckham's venture crashed and indeed burned. But more famous and influential than all of these was an Anglican clergyman called Richard Hackloyt. Hackloyt had been an enthusiast for the world of exploration and cartography and the weird and wonderful reports of exotic life since he was a lad, as I guess you would be. And he pursued his studies through school and university at Oxford. He travelled nowhere near the New World, but he did travel to France and work with scholars there and, of course, all over Europe. In England, he gained the patronage of influential men such as Francis Drake, Walter Raleigh, but most importantly, of Francis Walsingham. In the late 1570s, he was to be found at Walsingham's house on Seething Lane in London, poring over maps and texts to create a treatise called The Discourse of Western Planning. Hackloyd made a powerful argument that America was wonderfully fertile. He also argued that its inhabitants were naturally gentle and the climate was so benevolent that two harvests could be gathered in a single year. There was a vast storehouse of goodies to be gained, oranges, almonds, cloves, peppers, silkworms, wood. Seriously, it's a good job there was nothing like the Trade Descriptions Act back in those days because Hackloyd would have hit the back of the prison cell before you could say, you're nicked, mate. Hackloyd stressed that such a Western planting would not only supply materials and goods for a country where they were growing scarce, but that the exploitation of the land was pleasing in God's eyes. 
And another important theme emerged in this work, which would grow over the centuries, and about which the Spanish still complain to this day, the creation of the so-called Black Legend. The work of Bartholomew de las Casas, such as A Short Account of the Destruction of the Indies, painted a painful picture of the suffering of the natives within the Spanish and Portuguese colonial empires. Hakloit's account of the destruction caused overflowed with fury and horror. Fifteen million of souls destroyed, he claimed. The Catholic powers had talked of converting the natives, he wrote, but had brought only tyranny and death. And in this, Hakloit referenced and exploited the deeply embedded association in English Protestant minds between Catholicism and tyranny. This, then, was the Black Legend. There was a book recently published by a Spanish historian in which he complains of this Protestant calumny that has besmirched the Spanish reputation. He may have a point, though I suspect the argument has moved on from what was the best European colonial empire to a rather more fundamental question about the evils and damage wrought by all kinds of imperialism, but whatever. This is not the way English settlements would be, though, declared Hakloit, not at all. When brought face to face with the Queen, Hakloit built a picture of a childlike and gentle native people, eager to learn, and the English would teach them. He claimed that the people of America cry out to us as their next neighbours to come and help them and bring them unto the glad tidings of the gospel. He also played the Project Fear card. Look at Philip II arming the Irish rebels against her realm. So why not arm the inhabitants of Florida against Spain? Soon after the meeting, Walsingham, Drake and Philip Sidney met to confirm Walter Raleigh's entitlements in the New World. Hakloit's most popular work, though, was his Principal Navigations of the English Nation, published in 1589 with a later, vastly increased edition in 1598. It was dedicated to Walsingham, with a ringing in compliment of his special care of the honour of Her Majesty, the good reputation of our country and the advancing of navigation, the very walls of this our island which, as John Cooper notes in his biography of Walsingham, is a ringing phrase which maybe finds its way into the famous Sceptred Isle speech by you-know-who. Anyway, Principal Navigations was massively successful, as demonstrated in the number of copies that have survived to this day. With detailed and extensive reports of the travels of English explorers, he lit the fire of enthusiasm amongst Elizabethans, and the fervour for God's command as reflected in Psalm 107. They which go down to the sea in ships and occupy by the great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. Hakloit's work was immensely influential in generating support and interest in the voyages and exercises which followed. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
However, I can see your brows furrowing. Don't deny it, I can see it. If Hakloit was to be so influential, where are all those colonists then? Given the Elizabethans crash and burn in that neck of the woods, what did Hakloit and all those writers really achieve? The square root of Nafal? To answer that question, let us turn to the Queen, shall we? After all, she was the decision-maker here. All those influential councillors and courtiers simply presented ideas. She made the call. Elizabeth had to struggle with some big problems. One of those was the danger of war with the 16th century superpower, Spain. And it's worth noting that in 1580, of course, Philip II had also inherited Portugal and the vast Portuguese Empire to boot. Furthermore, in 1584, Vera Cruz's victories with a fleet of galleys over the last remaining Portuguese outpost, the Azores, demonstrated that Spain's naval power was far from being limited to the Mediterranean. She was supreme throughout the western seas and oceans. So, how to avoid war was Elizabeth's question. How to avoid being crushed? As part of that, Elizabeth needed to be sure that English activity in the New World was defensible and legal. Hakloit and Dee gave Elizabeth the justification she needed. She followed Hakloit in angrily rejecting the basis for Spanish claims to monopoly, which were, of course, based on a ruling by the Pope, whose authority she didn't recognise. She poured scorn on the claims of Spain to many parts of the New World, where they held no settlements or subjects. The Spaniards have no claim to property there, except that they have established a few settlements and named rivers and capes. This imaginary right of property ought not to prevent other princes from carrying on commerce in those regions or establishing colonies there in places not inhabited by Spaniards. She defended the depredations of privateers like Drake by pointing out that the Spanish have brought these evils on themselves by their injustice towards the English whom, against the law of nations, they have excluded from trade with the West Indies. In addition, the histories of John Dee seem to provide the legal claim held by the English to North America. Obviously, we can see that all this talk of King Arthur and Gog and Magog is, historically speaking, tripe. But the Elizabethans saw no reason to disbelieve it. So, I would like to turn now to one of the explorers that so delighted the English public, the aforementioned Francis Drake. One of the great things about Drake's story is that of an ordinary man rising to greatness in the days of strict social hierarchy. Drake's family came from Devon and leased land near Tavistock. They were therefore part of that group we identify as yeomen, better off peasant farmers essentially. The people of Tavistock looked to nearby Plymouth for trade and the higher value items that they couldn't find locally or make themselves. Let us just for a moment reflect on the extraordinary contribution of this part of Devon to English mariners. In 1539, Humphrey Gilbert was born in the valley of the River Dart and would be an adventurer in Ireland, as we have already heard, and an explorer to Newfoundland. His friend, John Davis, was born nearby around 1550 and would search for the sadly mythical Northwest Passage. 
Humphrey Gilbert's mother remarried and remarried one Walter Raleigh who lived near Exmouth and gave birth to one Walter Raleigh in 1552, making the ever-famous Walter Raleigh Gilbert's half-brother. Meanwhile, John Hawkins was born at Plymouth in 1532. The relationship with the Hawkins family would be very important to Drake. The Hawkins were a significant power in Plymouth. Francis was related to John Hawkins, who was his second cousin. Anyway, this whole Devon thing really is quite extraordinary. However, much of Drake's childhood would be spent not in Devon, but in Kent. It looks as though his dad Edmund fled with the family to Kent around 1549, the year of commotion time. Francis would have been around nine at the time, since he was born around 1540. Now the myth has been that Edmund was the victim of religious persecution at the hands of the Catholics in the prayer book rebellion. This is slightly complicated by the revelation that Edmund was revealed to have stolen a horse, so maybe he was fleeing the law. On the other hand, maybe the two are linked, and the horse-stealing was to help his flight. Who knows? But Edmund Drake took up residence as a Protestant preacher in a hulk on the Kent coast. Religious ferment followed Francis around. Kent was, of course, home to Wyatt's Rebellion, a Protestant uprising against Mary Tudor. Kent was also the home to numerous burnings of Protestant martyrs during the reign at Canterbury. Some biographers try to downplay Drake's religious motivations in the interests of emphasising that he was nothing more than about the profit motive. But it seems very clear that religious fervour played a very large part in Drake's life and mental makeup. Fox's Book of Martyrs was his constant companion, as it was for many English families, and he wrote himself to John Fox. For many years, he spent hours of each day in private worship. He wrote to Walsingham in 1588, declaring his belief that Elizabeth and her subjects had a special relationship with God. Our most gracious sovereign, her poor subjects, and the church of God, hath opened the heavens in divers places, and pierced the ears of our most merciful father. Drake would have agreed with the more extreme Protestants of the day, such as Francis Walsingham and the Earl of Leicester, that Catholicism was not just a corrupted church, as the early reformers had thought, but was the work of the Antichrist, seeking to corrupt the souls of the faithful. Drake was to identify powerfully against the manifestation of Catholicism made state in the form of the Spanish Empire, for which his antagonism would be fed by experience as well as by religious conviction. Around 1561, Edmund Drake landed himself a living at Upchurch on the estuary of the River Medway in Kent. The phrase, as poor as church mice, springs to mind for him. Edmund would be okay financially for his own life, with a small glebe as well as a salary. That's glebe, not grebe, by the way, although who knows, maybe he also had a small grebe. But the point is that this is not a grand Barchester Chronicles-type vicar with a grand house and a rich social living, lording it over his parishioners and his curate. He would leave very little in his will indeed, and only to his youngest child, because he had managed to place all his other children in trades in which they would have to make their own way in life. Francis was placed in the apprenticeship of the owner of a bark on the Kent coast, 
a bark meaning nothing more specific than a small sea-going vessel. There, Drake started to learn his seafaring trade, plying a coastal trade, and he seems to have impressed and formed strong relationships because when he died, the master willed the bark on Drake. As Drake's career is evidence, the sea was one of those walks of life where birth counted for less and where anyone could make a good living with luck and with opportunity. However, that did not divorce anyone from the realities of 16th century life where precedence relied on birth. Drake would frequently have problems on his voyages with members of the nobility expecting the same level of precedence at sea as they did on land. On occasion, he would need to be brutal. For himself, one of Drake's most attractive features was his ability to work as one with his fellow seamen. Drake next returned to his homeland in Devon, selling the bark but taking some of his mariners with him. In 1566, his connection with John Hawkins landed him his first international campaign, not directly with Hawkins, but under the command of one of Hawkins's captains, John Lovell. This was Drake's first experience of travel to the Caribbean, and it was an affair of straightforward piracy with the wafer-thin justification that Spain and Portugal were illegally keeping the English out of trade with the West Indies. The campaign therefore included attacks on Portuguese shipping, seizing wax, ivory and enslaved Africans. The small flotilla of three ships then travelled on to the West Indies, tipping up at Rio de Hacha, a small pearl-fishing port on the coast of what is today Venezuela. There, Lovell tried to trade with the governor. The Spaniard had to balance his desire for trade with Lovell and the possible retribution from Spain if he did trade with Protestants. The result was, to cut a long story short, that Lovell was forced to leave the enslaved Africans on the beach for the Spaniards to seize for a minimal payment and an unhappy return to England after an unprofitable journey. The experience would have talked Drake a lot. It also fed his suspicion of the Spanish who, it seems to him, had diddled the English traders. In 1567, Drake then joined Hawkins's ill-fated third voyage, dealing specifically in the enslaved. Once more raiding Portuguese ships and trading centres on the West African coast to take the enslaved they had bought from African states and taking them to the Caribbean to sell. We've covered this voyage in episode 300. It's the one where Hawkins arrived in San Juan de Ulea, just off the coast of northern Mexico, and was given a safe conduct by its Spanish governor, only then to be double-crossed and robbed of most of his admittedly largely ill-gotten gains, and seeing many men killed before limping home with just two ships from the six with which he had set out. Just to say, though, that on this voyage, Drake had his first command, a small bark of just 50 tons called the Judith. As Hawkins on the Minion laboured, overfilled with men and understocked with food, he found overnight that the Judith had gone, disappeared. Hawkins was sure he'd been deserted by his cousin Drake and wrote, So, with the Minion only and the Judith a small bark of 50 tons, we escaped, which bark, the same night, for succours in our great misery. 
we do not have any explanation from Drake for what he did, what had happened. Maybe, desperately overburdened, he felt there was nothing more he could do for the Minion and simply needed to get his men back to safety in England. His relationship with Hawkins would recover to a degree, but for the short term, he was without a patron. Secondly, Drake never forgot the duplicity of the Spaniards at both Rio de Hacha and San Juan de Ulea. In his view, they had double-crossed him without honour. The rest of his career would have within it an element of a search for revenge for what he saw as the treachery of the Spanish. These are the only two slaving expeditions in which Drake took part, and he never returned to it. And although attempts have been made in Plymouth to de-plinth him, I hope they will not succeed. Drake appears to have held the trade in some distaste, certainly he never returned to it. We saw in episode 301 how there seems to have been little evidence of the racism in England of later centuries towards black Africans. But there's more positive evidence than that. Drake would work closely with the escaped slaves, the Cimarron, in Panama. On several occasions, he freed black slaves. On one famous occasion, the enslaved swam to freedom aboard Drake's ship. And when the Spanish governor offered money if he would give them back, Drake refused. Drake had a good reputation in treating with Native Americans along the coasts of America and had a long partnership with the black African Diego. All in all, it might be a bit rich to go as far as claiming that Drake was a fighter for equality and liberty, as some have claimed but his desire for profit, which is undoubted, never again extended to the sale of human beings and he appears to have consistently treated both Native Americans and black Africans as his equals. So, we should keep his statues and I hope the good people of Plymouth will agree. In 1569 then, Drake got married to Mary Newman and by 1570 was living in Plymouth, styling himself a merchant. We know little about Mary Drake, unfortunately. Probably she came from London, but she would not see much of Francis, who would spend just as high a percentage of his time away from home as Richard I did. They had no children. Merchant might be the branding, but trading was not Drake's intention. In 1570, he launched the first English raiding expedition to the West Indies. The French had already been raiding there before 1528, and had been raiding in the West Indies in 1568 and 9, so quite recently. Drake had not one shred of authority for this raid. He could not claim to be acting as a privateer. The only defence would have been his desire for revenge for his betrayal at San Juan. We don't know much about the 1570 raid, but the likelihood is that its main value for Drake was one of reconnaissance so we might briefly review what he might have found out from this and his previous voyages. The Spanish South American Empire was still in its infancy, and it's worth noting that as yet the challenges it had faced militarily from other European nations were slight. Its towns, therefore, were relatively small. Places in Argentina, such as Valparaiso, were little more than clusters of houses. Towns were developing, though, throughout Peru, Mexico and the Spanish Main as it was known, basically the northern coast and hinterland of the South American continent. Here and on the main islands such as Havana on Cuba, Santo Domingo on the island of Hispaniola, 
San Juan on Puerto Rico, Panama and Nombre de Dios on the Isthmus of Panama, and Cartagena on the Caribbean coast of South America. There is a map, incidentally, on the website historyofengland.co.uk. However, a bit like the dodo, the towns faced very little opposition or threat, and so not only were they very small, they were also unwalled and undefended. But then, from 1545, the wealth of the Spanish Empire increased exponentially with the discovery of the silver mines at Potosi in what is now Bolivia. And by 1560, they were pumping out the silver on the backs of the misery of the local population and increasingly the enslaved. All this silver needed to be taken back to Seville, which held the imperial monopoly, along with all the other fabulous products of Central and South America. And so emerged the Flota system. Two fleets a year were sent to the Caribbean to take all the goodies back and supply the colonies with the things they wanted too. Together, the Flota consisted of around 70 vessels, which set off from Seville in early spring and split in the Caribbean into two fleets, one going north to Veracruz in Mexico and the other to Nombre de Dios on the eastern coast of Panama. Meanwhile, through the year, silver was taken along the Pacific coast from Potosi to Panama City on the west coast of Panama, and then it was transported by mule across the isthmus to Nombre de Dios. The southern fleet then unloaded all its goodies for the colonists, food, oil, wine, equipment, and then went on to Cartagena on the Spanish main, north Venezuelan coast that is, and wintered there, picking up all the other goodies from Central America while it did. Then the fleets rendezvoused at Havana on Cuba the following spring and set off back home for Seville. Now the wealth in those ships made men like Drake dribble. Dribble which combined with French saliva and would soon be joined by Dutch salivation to boot. In the 14 years between 1556 and 1570, something like 40 million ducats were shipped on the route, and although I do not have a 16th century exchange rate for ducat to sterling, some sort of idea might be reached by noting that when Drake did capture a small proportion of the silver on its way to the flotter, it amounted to something like the annual income of the English crown. This was a lot of money. And it gives an idea of the size and dominance of the Spanish imperial empire. After all, there was an equivalent flotter system in the Philippines too. The French, English and Dutch, obsessed about capturing the Spanish treasure fleet, they never succeeded. Well, once, the Dutch East India Company in 1628. Over about 100 years, the Spanish convoys lost 2.6% of their ships, 0.5% to enemy action. Not a bad record. One of the problems was that finding the fleet was toweringly difficult. The flota only passed land where you might lie in wait around Florida, hence the French attempt to settle there, and the Azores. So the French and English looked to ways to capture the treasure as it made its way to the flota. A French pirate, Jacques de Sauret, for example, raided Havana in 1550. Jacques was called the Exterminating Angel, which is a neat nickname for the village pub team. Oi, Exterminating Angel, fancy a pint? As a result of the raid, 
the Spanish attempted greater defence with a roving squadron of frigates into which Drake would run. Just to confuse you, a frigate in the 16th century was not the same as the 18th century version. In the 16th century, it was a small, oared galley. I have once more rattled on, so before we end, let's deal with Drake up to 1571. His expedition of 1570, about which we know so little, demonstrates the vision of the man. Rather than accepting the easy course of a privateer's mission to cruise the narrow seas on behalf of William of Orange or the French, it was he that realised how vulnerable were the Spanish in the Windies. In 1571, then, he set out again with one small ship, the Swan, of just 25 tonnes, all he could get together at the time, and a small oared pinnace that was to be built in situ. Drake's plan was to take advantage of the unprotected mule train route from Panama to Nombre de Dios. However, when he arrived, he found that the French had queered the pitch. Nicolas des Îles had already been active in the area and been driven off by the Spanish frigates, so the area was alert and wary. Nonetheless, Drake and his small group terrorised the area along the rivers and coasts of Panama from May 1571, capturing small barks carrying goods towards Nombre de Dios, and the tiny pinnace captured a Spanish frigate. The Spanish crew were set on an island from where they were rescued. By the time Drake returned, he'd probably netted £66,000 worth of goods, as well as terrifying the local population. Philip II was told that Drake was so fully in possession of the whole coast of Nombre de Dios, Cartagena, Tolu, Santa Marta and Cabo de la Vela, that traffic dares not sail from San Domingo thither, and trade and commerce are diminishing between the Windward Islands and this main. Drake's return caused something of a stir, and of course good ideas generate imitators. By late 1571 and into 1572, a number of English mariners had also launched expeditions to the Windies. William Winter, John Garrett and Lewis Larder of Plymouth, James Raunce of the Isle of Wight and a Captain Trenell of Totnes. Drake, meanwhile, had grander plans and it could be that bridges were mended with the Hawkins family and that they provided funding for the next expedition. Whether or not they did, Drake had two ships when he left in May 1572 for the Caribbean, the Swan and the Pasha, a total of 73 men and culverins to boot. He'd spotted a place on the Panamanian coast that he'd called Port Pheasant as it had so much wildlife. He planned to hole up there and then rather than taking a bark here and a bark there, he would go for the big one, a direct attack on Nombre de Dios. Right, that's it for this week. Next week we'll take Drake's story up to the early 1580s and his crowning glory, the circumnavigation of the globe. Until then, gentle listeners, do check out the podcast Revolutions 1 and thank you for your feedback and comments. Do remember that if you want more, membership offers you a large back catalogue and 90 minutes of new podcast every month from me. To become a member, go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk forward slash become a member. With that, good luck everyone and have a great week.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.